Good morning. I, I actually am not going to really teach on, I'll mention it, it'll come up, but I'm not really going to teach on Pentecost Sunday this morning. We're going to continue uh, in our series on the mysteries that Paul talks about in the New Testament. Do you remember how many there were? Seven, good. One person remembers, that's awesome. There were 70 specifically mentioned, um, but I have a bonus for you later. And uh, we're on the seventh one, so you're, you're probably thinking we're going to be done, but not quite. Anyway, uh, we're going to look at that today. If you want to follow along with your notes, feel free. We'll put the scriptures up as much as we can. Uh, so we're talking about, uh, for our list, and they're in no particular order, but it, they do kind of flow together. And so I've done them in an order where one explains the next one. So if you've missed some, you might want to go back and listen, or you may not understand some of the things I'm saying. Anyway, uh, let's jump in. We're starting this morning with the mystery that he talks about in Ephesians 1, where all things in heaven or earth are gathered into Christ. And you guys all got there early. Amen? Now, let me just read this to you, because it's pretty straightforward. Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Now, so this is it. This is his will. This is the end game. This is the whole purpose of everything we read in the Bible, okay? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Paul got very specific in case we were confused. Heaven things, earth things, all things in him. That's his purpose. That's his will. We know that's his will. Amen? And so it's pretty straightforward. There's actually not a lot to say about that uh, because it's just very clear. But uh, I do have more to say because you can see by copious notes there. Um, I will say this. It's important that we get that this is his end goal, that the end purpose is that we be gathered together in him. He is the place of unity. Let me make this clear. The church, the best church in the world, will never be 100% in agreement in unity of doctrine or what worship songs we need to listen to or uh, which ministry needs to happen at what time. Uh, we are going to continue to be a diverse church, and that's okay. Our unity is in Him. It is not in uh, our uh, every T and every I doctrine, right? There will always be room for us to have a different angle or slant at uh, the truths that are clear and evident in Scripture. Our unity is in Him. He is the place of unity. There's literally a place of unity. So beware of unity based on anything else, because there will be a guy show up talking unity, and it won't be in him. Just the, the scriptures warn us about that guy, remember? So beware of unity in anything else. He is the place of unity. And we talked a few weeks ago in Ephesians 2, one of the mysteries was the one new man, Jew and Gentile. Uh, together, one new man, one new ethnos. And it says very specifically in verse 15 that that one new man exists in him, only in him. 
Understand, it's not just, God's not just saying all of a sudden the races are going to get along. He's saying the only place the one new man exists is in Christ. Outside Christ, it's just not going to happen. Remember us talking about that. So it's very important that we get that the purpose, the mystery of his will, is that we be gathered in him and that uh, he is the place of unity. Amen? Okay, now that you have that, uh, it seems like, you know, we could just stop there and be done. Uh, but I want to answer a question. I thought that this would be a good time since we've looked at uh, the end of his will. Oh, and in fact, I, I did want to say this. He, he, he sort of stated this end purpose from the beginning. Paul covers this in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says that all things were created by him. For him, right? It's easy for us to forget that. We were, everything was made by Jesus for Jesus. Nothing was made for you or me. Now, Jesus is very generous and gives us stuff, but it was all made by him for him. And in fact, it says, he goes on and says, all things consist in him. He holds, literally, it means he holds all things together. If God wanted to destroy the earth, he doesn't have to do anything more than just quit paying attention because he's holding it all together. He's that big. So, knowing the end purpose from the beginning, I thought this would be a good time for us to do a brief history of the world from uh, the first Adam to the second Adam, uh, just hitting the high spots. What I think is, if you can get a vision for why God's doing what he's doing in the big picture, it will help us to understand some of the small picture details that are going on in the earth today. Specifically, I want to answer this question. Why all the drama about Israel? We just spent three weeks talking about God's love for Israel, how important and how pivotal Israel is. What's the big deal? If God just wants to gather all things together in one thing, why didn't he just do that? Why is he messing around with Israel? Why thousands of years of prophecy and, and things we don't understand, what's the deal? I'm going to tell you. I'm glad you asked. Now, at the end of the day, it comes down to one simple principle, which I'm going to call the principle of voluntary love. God wants voluntary love. God does not want forced love. How many of you uh, force your spouse to marry you against their will? Just one. For most of us, that would be, oh, two, okay. For most of us, that would be unsatisfying. Why? We want voluntary love. This is not deep, guys. This is simple. God, the inventor of love, wants voluntary love. So here's what you have to understand. For love to be voluntary, it is intuitively necessary for there to be all other choices, for there to be alternatives. And so God isn't intimidated by us having other choices. Because he wants voluntary love. In fact, this is the answer to the question that often gets asked, why does God let bad things happen to good people? First of all, there's not really any good people but one. But that aside, here's the answer. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Voluntary love. Because God has set up a system where he wants us to voluntarily choose to love him. And so he has set up a system where we have every other choice. You know what that means? That means... Today, 
you can walk out this door and choose to do bad things to good people and God won't stop you. He will hold you accountable for it in eternity. He'll let you do it. One of the scariest things in the Bible are the verses that talk about how God lets us have what we want. You ever think about that? And he gave them over too. They really wanted it. They really wanted a king, so he gave them one. Right? He'll do that because he wants voluntary love. And the truth is when people say, why does God let bad things happen to good people? What they're mostly saying is, I don't care about other good people. Why did God let a bad thing happen to the good person that I care about? Right? And it's, and it's an excuse to be mad at God. And the truth is, we all can do bad things to good people if we want to. God will let you do it. So this principle requires choice. Think about the Garden of Eden. The first choice ever. God sets Adam and Eve in the garden, and there's this tree that's going to cause the fall of humanity and bring creation under corruption and give Satan access and control of the earth. And God tells him not to eat of this tree, and then he puts a fence around it, and he hides it in a corner, and he doesn't let Satan in the garden. Oh, no, that's not how it reads, is it? He sets it in the middle of the garden and he lets Satan wander around in there and talk with Eve and with Adam. What's that about? Voluntary love. Obey me or don't. Right? So we got to get this principle because this is going on in the whole earth. And we're going to, in just a minute, uh, look at some. We're actually, we're going to look at the Tower of Babel. There's only about nine verses that described the entire story of the Tower of Babel. So it's really easy to just relegate that as, you know, just one of those Bible stories that's kind of interesting and, you know, sing songs about it as kids and stuff. But uh, it is pivotal. It is huge. And today, this is the thing I'm hoping that as we understand, we're going to get a bigger picture of what God's doing on the earth because he desires voluntary love and what that has to do with Israel. You ready? All right, so God chooses men to do things. He's choosing you guys to do things. He's chosen me to do things. And he's always done that. So he started out by choosing Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the problem was the fall. Adam fell, right? Now, we don't have to read very far. We get to Genesis chapter 6, and we read that now the earth has a problem because of the fall, that all the thoughts of men all the time were only wickedness. The earth is steeped in wickedness, so much so that God's going to bring a flood and wipe out all these wicked people. But he has a solution. He chooses a man, Noah. Why did he choose Noah? Because Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked people. What is the solution for wickedness? Righteousness. Pretty simple, right? So God's working the problem already. We got a problem of wickedness. God chooses a man, Noah, who is righteous, in ostensibly the hopes that Noah will raise up righteous generations after him. Now, I want you to note something because we're in Genesis chapter 6 now. There's just been a big flood, and Noah comes out of the flood with his, his kids and their wives and a lot of critters. And uh, something else is going on that's really easy to overlook in Genesis chapter 6. We get introduced to 
what the Bible calls the sons of God, which uh, is pretty much agreed upon that these were angels, fallen angels. Uh, but what we see in Genesis chapter 6 is the sons of God are starting to interact with men in negative ways. Uh, and uh, if you want to hear more about that, Brett Stebbins will talk to you about Nephilim and stuff. But uh, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail this morning. But I do want you to be aware that in the midst of all this wickedness in the earth, the sons of God, referring to these fallen angels, show up and are having influence because they're going to show up again. All right? Now, let's jump to uh, Genesis 11, the next big event. We have the Tower of Babel. And this is what I want to focus in on so you see what's happening in the earth and uh, why it's about voluntary love. So at the Tower of Babel, interestingly, the Hebrew word Babel, uh, or the, the Hebrew word that is translated Babel, in the Hebrew literally means confusion. You know why? Because at the, t at the Tower of Babel, he confused the earth's languages, right? It does not mean confusion in Babylonian, the language they were using at that time. Or, well, I don't know what language they were using at that time. They ended up with that language. In Babylonian, it means gate of God. You need to understand, they weren't building a big astronomy tower. They weren't literally trying to build a tower that got out of the heavens. They were building a worship center to God, but not the God, to false gods. I'm going to show you in a minute. They had entered into idolatry. They had entered into worshiping these sons of God that we saw in Genesis 6 that had begun to interact with the earth. And so the reason Jesus is concerned, or the reason God's concerned about the Tower of Babel, about them uh, being one people with one voice, is because they're seeking the spirit realm, and they're building this, really, it's just called a big church, but uh, they're not seeking God. They're seeking these fallen angels as gods. It was, it was an idolatry problem, you understand. So that helps us understand why the Tower of Babel is such a big deal and why God is concerned because they were about to, with one voice, as one people, the entire earth was about to give itself over to just worshiping devils, worshiping false gods. And so God says, well, we're not going to do that, right? And because he's able, he does a couple things. The first one is he... Uh, confuses their language. And the second one is he scatters them. Now let's think about that. Uh, this one language thing is, is either very good or very dangerous. And so I want to tell you, uh, we have a whole generation, by the way, I'm, I'm amazed, that's growing up. And none, none of you guys, you young people are smart because you read your Bibles. But uh, we have a whole generation that's growing up and they don't think free speech is a big deal. And they're ready to hand it over. And I'm going, whoa. I have no idea what a big deal this is. What a rare deal this is in the earth. That we can have dissenting voices. When there's one voice and it's not God's voice, we're in trouble. Beware of one voice. Do you see these same Sons of God at work in the earth today trying to reduce us to one voice. See that happening? It's the same spirit. 
that gave us the Tower of Babel, isn't it? Let's have one voice. Let's all be saying the same thing. And if you don't say the same thing, we're going to silence your voice, right? You getting it? More things change, more they stay the same, especially with devils. Nothing new under the sun. The second is they were scattered. They were scattered so they couldn't work together in this endeavor, and their voices were changed so they wouldn't have, or their, their languages were changed so they wouldn't have one voice towards this endeavor. Uh, so scattered is the punishment for going after idolatry. He says, I'll scatter you. And uh, again, one of the big things that we see in the earth today is a push towards globalism. Let's all come into unity. But again, not unity under God, unity uh, under humanity. Let's, let's, let's see what we can do as one people. Let's, let's, let's unify in the name of human potential. Uh, globalism. Again, beware. I'm, in no uncertain terms, it's a demonic strategy, and it will never happen. You know how I know it will never happen? Because Jesus refers to the nations in, during the millennium, which tells me there'll be nations during the millennium. Not even Jesus wants one world government. He wants nations. He'll just govern all of them. That's how it works. All right. So, you see the big picture, the issue uh, of this demonic control. And understand, it is control. The, the, the going after one voice, the going after globalism. It's all a thinly veiled attempt by Satan through the sons of God, the fallen angels, to control the earth. That's it. It's very simple. Does everybody see that? So we should probably avoid this, yeah? Now, the problem as I've just shown you, with the Tower of Babel, was idolatry, Genesis 11. Notice the very first thing, the very first three verses in Genesis 12, right after the idolatry issue that God deals with in the Tower of Babel, he chooses a man, Abraham. Abraham was a man of, I know? Faith. faith. He was the man of faith. Wickedness, he chose a righteous man. Idolatry, he chose a man of faith. So I'm going to pick a guy who's going to stay faithful to me. Now, understand, we're going to get to Israel through Abraham, but God didn't choose Israel. God chose Abraham and made Israel from Abraham. It's all about the man of faith. Amen? And so God says, well, I've got an idolatry issue I'm going to choose a man, Abraham. And here's what happened. I'm going to show you this a minute in Scripture. But here's what happened. He made an, a nation out of Abraham, obviously the nation of Israel. Now, traditionally, the, this isn't in Scripture, but this is in Jewish tradition, that there were, the, when the, God divided the nations, that he divided it uh, into 70 nations and or languages. And here's what I want you to see. In the midst of that, so he's just divided all the earth that wants to worship fallen angels into 70 nations, and the very next thing he does is he goes, I'm going to take Abraham, and I'm going to make my own nation. Remember Exodus 19, you will be uh, a holy people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, my own special people. 
So what he's doing, what you need to understand, is the whole thing about the Tower of Babel is God saying, you guys want to follow other gods? You go ahead. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to make my own nation that isn't following false gods, and I'm going to set them in the middle of you guys, and I'm going to give you a witness in the earth of what it looks like to follow me versus following those fallen angels. Do you understand? So the whole point of Israel being chosen is a witness in the earth, voluntary love. God goes, you want to follow those fallen angels? Have at it. I'm just going to make sure that my kingdom is represented so that you have a choice. And I want you to choose me. You understand what's going on? You see why this was such a big deal. Now, uh, I just told you about it. Let me show it to you in Scripture. And I'm going to use a couple different translations here than I usually use, and I'll explain why. Well, the first one is just uh, the NASB translates this better. In Jeremiah 3.19, God says, Then I said, how I would set you, he's talking about Israel, how I would set you among my sons, among the sons of God, and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. So he goes, I'm given all these nations that want to follow false gods and inheritance, but I'm going to set you among them, among my sons, and give you the best inheritance, the most beautiful inheritance. I'm going to, I'm going to set you apart as different. What I love about this is it's almost as if God doesn't want the people to think that the nation was special. Here's what he does. And now, understand I'm reading into here some of God's intentions. I may not have it perfectly right, but I think I figured some things out. He takes this nation, Israel, he takes them to Egypt, he brings them into slavery. When they're absolutely helpless in slavery, he brings them out of slavery through all the stuff we read in the book of Exodus with many signs and wonders as if to point out to the nations that he's doing this for his glory, not because Israel is all that. It was a bunch of slaves that he brought out, and in a period of 40 years, or maybe 50 or 60 by the time they'd taken all the land, he brought out and set as a nation above all the other nations around it and began to show, here's what the witness of God in the earth looks like. Here's what God will do for the people that choose to follow him in faith, not to follow idols. You getting the big picture? Okay. Now... It's shown most clearly in Deuteronomy 32. So I'm going to read this, uh, but I got to give you a little, and, and, and at this point, I'm going to thank Jeremiah for doing my Hebrew research. Uh, so if you need Hebrew research done, um, you can, you know, just don't wear them out because I need them occasionally for that. Um, but he uh, looked into this for me because I, I, I couldn't quite totally figure it out. So now I got it figured out. Uh, we're going to read this in the Septuagint. Here's why. The Septuagint is an older translation of the Bible. And, uh, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, we have this passage of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they line up perfectly with the Septuagint. What happened was the Masoretic text, there was a, a rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, around 100 AD, about 100 years, or about 70 years after Jesus, um, he began to do the Masoretic text, and he purposely was changing some things, not interpreting them differently, actually changing a few words. 
he changed some words about uh, messianic passages because he didn't want the apostles being able to use those verses to convert Jews to Jesus. Uh, and this is one of the passages he changed simply because he didn't like the mention of foreign gods, which is actually the point of the passage. So, uh, I'm reading it to you in the Septuagint. In a lot of your translations where it says uh, sons of God, uh, you'll have, it'll read for you sons of Israel. Uh, that's the later Masoretic test where this guy changed it. So everybody follow that. All right, enough background. Let's read this because it's super clear. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 12. When the Most High divided the nations. What's he talking about? Tower of Babel. Yep. He divided up the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, that'd be all the people in the earth, and set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels or sons of God. Do you see it? He said, all right, I'll just set boundaries in different nations, and you can all have your own demon to worship, your own fallen angel. And then look what he did. He, according to the number of the angels or sons of God, and his people, Jacob, became the portion of the Lord. He says, and I'll pick one team for myself, and I'll, I'll start them out with a disadvantage. Jacob became the portion of the Lord. Israel was the line of his inheritance. He maintained him in the wilderness, in burning thirst in a dry land. He led him about and instructed him and kept him as the apple of an eye, as an eagle would watch over his brood and yearns over his young, receives them having spread his wings and takes them up on his back, the Lord, the Lord alone led them. So he's talking about the tender care with which God takes care of his people, contrasting that with the nations of the earth. And then he ends with this, the Lord alone led them and there was no strange or foreign God with them. It was important that he point that out. He's going, I divided the nations. I let them worship other gods. I picked my own guy. I made him a nation and no foreign gods among them. Do you understand now why it was such a big deal to God again and again and again to the nation of Israel not to enter into idolatry? Don't marry those women from those other countries. You'll end up worshiping their gods. Don't go in and worship the gods of the people in the land you're taking over. Don't do it. I'm trying to make a point here, Israel. You're my witness in the earth. Don't take up with other gods. You understand what's going on? So, this, incidentally, answers another question. Why has Israel, for literally thousands of years, been persecuted? And on top of that now, the church. Why is the church being persecuted? Because these fallen angels, these sons of God want to silence the witness of God in the earth. To do that, they have to remove Israel, and now they have to remove the church. We see this in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. It says that the nations rage. The nations are angry. And again, we're talking about all the nations of the earth here. Why are the nations raging? They're trying to figure out a way to get out from under God and His Son. It says it right there in Psalm 2. They're raging. We can't have this. We have to be free to choose our own gods. And we can't have the witness of the one true God staring us in the face. 
we're going to need to get rid of Israel. And now that the church is being grafted in, we're going to need to get rid of them also. The nations have to do this in order to feel comfortable following their own gods. And they're being led to do this by Satan and these fallen angels. Pretty simple, right? Big picture. So, to this day, these same principalities and powers, sons of God, are trying to silence his witness in the earth. And it won't be enough to silence the church because Israel is still a part of his witness in the earth, which is why Israel will continue to be persecuted until Christ comes and rescues them, right? Uh, very Exodus-like, stand on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, they run through. Where have we seen that before? Now, just for fun, let's go ahead and get to Jesus here in God choosing men. So, he chose Israel, um, and uh, Israel, well, we'll get to the kind of job Israel did. Now, in the midst of setting Israel up in the promised land, he gives them Moses, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and comes down and gives them the law of righteousness. So they understand what righteous behavior is, among which is having no other gods before him, right? Now, we know from reading the Old Testament that uh, Israel tried real hard but failed pretty, pretty miserably uh, in the issues of sin and idolatry, right? Like most of us would do uh, just given our flesh. So, Interestingly, again, I want you to tie all this together. This is going to come into play next week, too. Um, because of their idolatry, he led them into captivity. Where'd they go? Babylon, where there used to be a tower, Tower of Babel, right? And it says he led them into captivity and he scattered them. What's the punishment for idolatry? I'm just going to scatter you. You see it? I want you to be a witness in the earth. You're not being a witness in the earth. You're going after other gods. So I'm going to take you back to the Tower of Babel and scatter you. and See if that, you know, rings a bell. Incidentally, uh, it must have because when they came back into the land with the rebuilt temple, they did a lot better with the idolatry thing. They quit going after other gods. All right. So, we see that, but here's the real deal. The reason they continued in sin and idolatry, we read in Romans 8. It says, the law is weak through the flesh, because of the flesh. The law, the law cannot make righteous because it's weak because of the flesh. It's, it's a weak flesh problem. Anybody relate with that? Good. But the solution says in Romans 8 that, that if we... That that we'd be given the Spirit so that we don't have to walk according to the flesh, right? The solution to weak flesh is the man Jesus, the giver of the Holy Spirit. Remember John the Baptist? Uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's the giver of the Holy Spirit. We're celebrating that on Pentecost today. Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit so we don't have to walk in the flesh. He gave us a way to overcome the problem of our weak flesh, walking in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5, right? See, God knows what he's doing. Now, I find it interesting that on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out 
and they began to speak in tongues. And all of the different nations that were gathered in Israel heard them in their own language. You know what that is? That's a reverse Babylon. He did a backward battle. It's almost as if he's trying to make a point, saying, hey, you know how through idolatry I scattered all the nations and, says, I don't, and said, I don't want you speaking with one voice towards idolatry? It's almost as if he's saying, in Christ, I'm going to bring all those voices back together, and you're going to speak with one voice again in me. Just my thoughts. Otherwise, I'm just like, where the heck did the tongues thing come from? Remember that. It's just pops up. Anyway, we're having fun. All right, so that's my brief history of the earth. Uh, you understand, and I, I want to answer the question, uh, what's the big deal about Israel? And let's move forward, because what's the big deal about Israel still? Because, you know, we have the Holy Spirit now, right? Uh, but Israel is still a big deal, and here's why. Um, because there are promises to Israel about being restored as a nation. But what I want you to see is it's about the nations. Again, it's about Israel, but it's not about Israel. It's always about God. It's just like it's about you, and God makes you feel like you're the most important person ever to exist, but it's still about God. It's not about you. You understand? And so it's about Israel, but really it's about God, and it's about the nations. It's always been about the nations. In fact, we see this in, in, Moses, in Moses in Exodus 33. Remember, we've had the golden calf incident, and God tells Moses, step back, I'm killing everyone, and I'll start over with you. I'll make you a great nation, right? Because I don't, I don't need them. I got Abraham. You're in the line of Abraham. You'll do. I'll make another nation. Incidentally, think about Moses' appeal. Moses' appeal is, God, don't do it. What will Egypt say? What about your witness in the nations? What will the nations say, God? They'll say, you couldn't do this. They'll say, you couldn't bring Israel through this. Which, you know, God wasn't going to do it anyway. He knew what Moses was going to say. So he, he takes the appeal. There are people now that are still saying, man, God can't do it. God isn't going to, but he'll do it. He's still going to do the things he said he's going to do with Israel. Amen. The nations will see it. All right, so let's look at that. We see this in Exodus chapter 36. Now, you need to know that Exodus chapter 36 is beginning several chapters where it's prophesying the restoration of Israel. So this is in the context of Israel being restored, and I want you to see what it's really about. I'm going to I'm not going to read all the verses. I'm just going to kind of skip through the selective ones. He says, therefore, I poured out my fury on them, speaking of Israel, for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols. Remember, they had an idolatry problem with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations. That's the punishment for idolatry. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. And he's getting ready to this. He's getting ready to talk about is uh, is the restoration of Israel. He says, thus says the Lord, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have proclaimed, I'm sorry, you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. Get it? 
Now, this doesn't negate all the things we just spent the last few weeks learning about the love of God towards Jerusalem and how he's going to reign there and how they're his bride and his people. He still loves them, but he's not doing this for them. He's doing it for his namesake and for the witness of the nations. He's going, hey, I'm doing this for my namesake because you were supposed to represent my name before the nations, and instead you profaned my name among the nations. He says, but I'm still going to make it happen. Watch this. For I will take you from among the nations where I scattered you, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. We're going to get this idolatry thing dealt with. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. He's obviously talking about the restoration of Israel and their salvation. This is a perfect description of the new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah that we experience every day ourselves, right? So he's talking about the restoration. Then look at this. So they will say... They is the nations. This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Wouldn't that be cool? And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. Israel, even though you've been unfaithful, I will still use you as a witness to the nations. You are still, for the sake of my covenant with Abraham, I will still show the nations it's better to follow me than to follow those fallen sons of God. You get the plan? It's a good plan. We go on. The very next chapter is Ezekiel 37, which you know, which is the dry bones chapter. We're told in that chapter that the dry bones represent Israel. Jeremiah did a really good job when he taught on this of tying that to the resurrection life that we see in Romans eleven fifteen, where he talks about their salvation being life from the dead. Just want to point out that is still the plan. That's still the plan. Hasn't changed. Are you following me? Getting a good idea of the big picture plan here so that the little pieces can fall into play? Let's have some more fun with this. Now, remember... We're going to look at Abraham's covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham. We're going to look at Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. Now remember, what happened in Genesis 11? Tower of Babel. You guys with me? All right. This is right after the Tower of Babel. He makes this covenant with Abraham. And as I told you last teaching, uh, this is an everlasting covenant. The law has passed away. This covenant has not. This covenant is still in play. Because God calls it an everlasting covenant. He says, in this covenant, Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the plan. Now, Israel did a great job pursuing this covenant except for that last line. You notice that? They never quite got the the families of the earth will be blessed in you part. Instead, remember in Ephesians 2 where we saw that they literally built a wall of separation at the temple? They had the court of 
the Jews, the court of the Gentiles, they build a wall. You cross this wall, you get dead. Paul called it the wall of enmity. We talked about all the racism that was going on between Jew and Gentile. In fact, that court of the Gentiles was the place where the, here's, here's where you Gentiles can worship, right? You remember when G Jesus overturned the tables? You know where they were? Court of the Gentiles. And what verse did he quote? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So here's what the Jews were doing. The Jews were going, all right, here's a wall of separation. You cross this, you die. You guys worship in the court of the Gentiles. By the way, we're also going to make that the mall. <laughs> Dual purpose. Because we don't give a flip about you guys. We need to buy our sheep and change our money. You understand what's going on. They did not get this part of the covenant. Right? So, because they did not get this part of the covenant, we covered this last time also. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he's talking directly to the Pharisees, he tells them the parable of the vine dresser. He goes, hey, this guy had a vineyard, and he hired some vine dressers, and he kept sending people to collect fruit from the vineyard, and they kept beating him up and killing him. And finally, he sent his son. He says, they'll respect my son. And uh, the guys that are working the vine go, oh, this is the son. We kill him. The vineyard's ours. So they kill the son. And he, he looks at the Pharisee. He goes, uh, what's that vine dresser going to do when he comes? He goes, well, they're, he's going to they're gonna deal with those wicked people. And then he looks right at the Pharisees. He goes, have you not heard? Have you not read? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And they got mad because he knew he was talking to them. And he said, catch it, verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God has been taken from you and given to a nation that will bear fruit. That's us. And Jews who've been saved. The one new man, the holy ethnos, right? And so Jesus says there's going to be a period of time where the covenant or the kingdom is expressed. My witness in the earth that you were supposed to do that you haven't done is going to be shifted to this one new man, holy ethnos, Jew and Gentile, who uh, are, are sons of Abraham by faith who follow me. Is this all making sense? So what's the first thing he does? The first thing he tells this new holy ethnos? Holy, or the, the, uh, the Great Commission, you guys remember? Go make disciples of all the nations, which was the goal in the first place. You see how much it's about the nations and about his witness in the earth, about voluntary love, about God going, I'm going to let you choose whatever you want, but I'm going to have a witness in the earth of what it looks like to follow me. So we're just trying to be his witness in the earth so the nations will choose him. Amen? Now, one more place. Let's look at the promised restoration of Israel. And again, we read, I'm just reminding you of things we've already talked about. We read in Isaiah 60 how Israel isn't just going to be restored. They're going to be restored to their position as the lead nation. Uh, the Gentiles will come to the brightness of your shining. They will bring their wealth to you. The nation that does not serve you will be removed. Uh, Israel is restored to the lead nation. 
In Acts chapter 3, Paul's, or Peter's just healed somebody, and he's preaching another sermon. It's early in the church, and I want you to see this. I think this is cool. You may not, but I, did, you know, I get excited about these things. Um, and he's talking about how they need to repent so that times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. And he goes on here, picking it up in verse 20. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive. Remember, they saw Jesus go up into heaven until the time of the restoration of all things. It says he's going to be there until it's time to come back and restore all things, notably the restoration of Israel, right? Which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Still going to happen. Peter's going, still going to happen. Israel's going to be restored. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. Which covenant? Abraham's covenant. Because he's going to quote it. You're sons of the covenant. Here we go. Which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's what I love. He doesn't quote the whole covenant. He just quotes the part they haven't done yet. Did you catch that? He goes, you know that covenant with Abraham? He's going to do this part now. I'm finally getting it. It's about us being a witness to the nations. He's still going to do it. Israel is still going to be a witness to the nations. The one new man is still going to be a witness to the nations. I love that when Peter quotes the covenant, the only thing he quotes is the part about the nations. It's as if he's finally gotten it. Oh, this is why God's going to restore us, because he always intended us to be his witness in the earth to the nations, to the sons of God. Now, so again, I point out to you voluntary love. It's always been about a witness of him in the nations in the midst of all our choices. It's always been about that. And God is not in a hurry. He is patient. He will, he will take his time and let everybody choose. We're going to talk more about that next week. But I do want to show you one other thing. When we talked about uh, the one new man uh, last time, I, we were in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. I went really fast over this part in Ephesians 3 because I, I didn't want to hit it then. I'm going to hit it now. So we're going back to that. Look at this. Not only is the one new man... Jew and Gentile, a new nation in Christ. Not only are we a witness in the earth to people, to the nations, we're a provocation to, to Israel, who the part of Israel isn't saved yet, uh, our one new manness. But notice what else we're a witness to. Remember the sons of God, those fallen angels? Check this out. Ephesians 3.10, to the intent, and again, this is in the context of the one new man, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, that's us, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You get it? God's going, by the way, sons of God, fallen angels, check out this one new man thing I did. You see the wisdom of that? See what I did there? You, you know, I let all the nations follow you, and I made my own, and I let them choose, and they chose love, and they're even willing to suffer for it. See my wisdom there, fallen angels? Isn't that cool? God's going to use us to even answer them. We are 
a witness in the earth of the wisdom of God to principalities and powers in heavenly places. I just think that's cool. All right. So let me set you up a little bit for next week, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, we pretty much in the New Testament have all of the mystery of God that was a mystery in the Old Testament, now revealed in Christ, explained, and we've just taught through that. We've done all seven. Seven. Um, but there's one thing we still don't have, and I just want you to be aware of this because I'm very interested in it. In Revelation chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, uh, John is in heaven walking around with an angel seeing stuff, and he's writing it down so we can know what he saw, except there's these seven thunders, and they utter their voice, and John's fixing to write it down, and the angel goes, no, no, no. Seal that up. We're going to save that for the end, Right? And so that part we don't know yet. Uh, I'm very interested. I think it's prophetic utterances from heaven. I don't know what they are, but I'm very interested in what happens when the seven thunders utter. But let's look at the when of that. We find in Revelation chapter 10 that it happens. It's still hidden from us. So there's one mystery at least remaining. Um, and uh, I love where Jeremiah says that, talking about prophecy, that in the end times you shall understand perfectly. I think once, all the, once we hear those seven voices, however that works out, we're going to go, oh, yeah, I got it all now. Anyway, uh, it happens just before the seventh trumpet. In Revelation 10, it's right before the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And it's at the sounding of the seventh trumpet that Christ comes at the last trumpet. Again, some of you may disagree with me. Feel free. That's what I'm going to teach. Um, so at his coming, right before these seven thunders utter, and then listen to this, verses uh, 6 and 7. So it's just a, a couple of verses down from the seven thunders. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, and earth that are things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. So there's been a delay for some reason. Again, I think this has to do with voluntary love and all the choices being displayed. And I'll talk more about that next week. There should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, that's the seventh trumpet, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So I just want you to see that the mystery of God is completed at the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the coming of Jesus to establish his reign in the earth, the restoration of Israel, and we all get it. Uh, awesome visual of the big picture. And from understanding that, it's easier to fit in some of the things that are happening in the earth today, right? Now, this begs the question, uh, what is the delay? There'll be delay no longer. Why delay? God, why are you delaying? We'd like you to hurry up. What's the delay, right? And the answer is found in one more mystery. We're actually going to do one more mystery next week. There's an eighth mystery I didn't tell you about. Second Thessalonians refers to it as the mystery of lawlessness. And that is, I'm going to use that to explain what the delay is about. So you'll have to come back next week to her that one. All right, how's that for a cliffhanger? Does this make sense to you? See how understanding God's intentions with the Tower of Babel uh, uh, 
give us the big picture. And we can begin to see how all this makes sense and why Israel is such a big deal. Simply because he chose Abraham and the covenant is still in play to represent his witness in the earth. We've been grafted into that witness. We're just a part of that witness now. And Israel will be grafted back in and it'll be awesome. Won't that be awesome? All right. All right, let's pray. Lord, we like your plan. Again, we see wisdom in your plan. Lord, I love that you're using the church to display your wisdom to the sons of God who, uh, who've been trying to lead the people of earth into demonic idolatry worship for thousands of years. That your wisdom is to use the church and the one new man to display your glory. Lord, we ask you to do it. Lord, we get our part. We get our part with Israel. We get our part with you. Lord, make us your witness in the earth. Lord, I love that in the Great Commission, uh, Lord, you said make disciples of nations. Lord, you've done it. We've seen the gospel spread through the nations in the last 2,000 years. And Lord, I know that every nation will hear the gospel before you come. <laughs> Lord, you are awesome. When we see how big, how grandiose, how awesome you are in your plan, how, how much uh, foresight you've exercised, Lord, it's easier to trust you. We just say we trust you. So, Lord, uh, we want Church on the Rock to do her part in your plan. We want Brevard County to do her part in your plan. We as individuals want to each do our little part to be your witness in the earth, to fulfill your plan. Lord, I am so excited that your plan absolutely will come to pass, that these things absolutely will happen. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, amen. You encouraged? Yes. All right. There, there may be some rough moments in there, but we'll talk about that next week, too, how to handle it. All right, who's, who's wrapping this up? Brian, are you wrapping this up? Wrap us up, Brian. Bless them. Bless them real good so they'll, you know, go be God's witnesses in the earth. Somebody go save a nation. So I just wanted to leave you with a um, blessing. Um, it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or to think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever.